Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about being there for the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Colbeer Candola. Colbeer is a director at Eversley Nursing Home, a care home based in Royal Leamington Spa. Uh, Colbeer, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership on the programme, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's wholly appropriate that we start there because you have been working, of course, on the front line yourselves, being in the care industry, and COVID has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. So how has it affected you and what you've been doing on that front line? Um, well, it's affected us in a big way, as um, you know, everyone's seen in the news. Um, apart from Eversley, I have five other care homes. So we have a group of six care homes, all in different cities. And um, I was very aware of uh, COVID back in January. Um, I was hearing the news, you know, what was going on in China. And uh, so at that point, I thought if the COVID does come to the UK, it is going to affect the care homes because we are looking after the most vulnerable group of people. And so at that point, I made a decision that we would buy a whole pile of PPE for all our homes, and which we did back in January. So we, we locked it all away, you know, as emergency stock. And then we thought we would wait and see, see what happens. And uh, eventually, um, when we went into lockdown in March, um, by that time, um, we decided very early on that we were going to stop visitors to our homes. And we were probably uh, one of the first groups, certainly within the Midlands, to do that. And uh, it was a, a challenge, obviously, a big change for the families, big change, you know, how we operated. But um we did that by uh, writing to all the families and explaining, you know, why we were doing it. And uh, there was a little bit of backlash from some of the families. And uh, because, um, you know, uh, we didn't have any other systems for people to be able to uh, remain in contact with, with their loved ones. So what we did at that point was we also bought some tablets for all of our homes. And uh, so that uh, we put in a, a system for uh, for people to be able to book video calls uh, with their moms and dads within the care homes. It was a very scary time because um, the the government told all the hospitals to empty their beds, and so uh, we were uh, almost being forced to admit residents into our homes mm. who hadn't been tested, and. Um, and the, the existing residents that we had, we were told that if anyone is ill, then, um, you know, please don't call us. You've got to care for them, you know, within your homes. Uh, in Wolverhampton, we, we even had the uh, district nurses come in and actually prepare 
death certificate. So they collected the information to prepare the death certificates in advance so that the GPs wouldn't have to come. And uh, so you can imagine at that time, it was, it was a very, very scary, scary time for it. Um, but, you know, we were kind of thinking on our feet. There was very little information around. Uh, and uh, the, the other measure that we put in place was we decided that we would set up uh, isolation units in all of our homes with separate access to the home. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's what we did. So any residents we admitted at that time, um, they were isolated, you know, in that unit for 14 days. We barrier nursed them. Uh, we used the PP that we had. Uh, it was a really big struggle to try and get, you know, more stocks, stocks of the PPE. Uh, very quickly, we had to um, train our staff in donning and doffing of the PPE. Uh, we, we changed uh, certain policies with the staff. So, for example, we stopped them from uh, traveling to and from work in their uniforms. Uh, so they had to change at work. We, we, we went ahead. And uh, we bought uh, thermometers, so we started testing, uh, checking staff um, temperatures every shift. Uh, we were checking residents' temperatures uh, every shift, uh, sorry, uh, on, on a daily basis. Um, so, yeah, so um, in terms of masks, because we weren't able to get a lot of the PPE, I, I ended up actually purchasing um, rolls of fabric. Uh, which we then I supply to all my homes and staff locally made masks either out of those or or they just you know use pieces of fabric um, uh, as um, um, you know uh, sorry I'm, I'm struggling there now as, as masks so th those were the whole range of things uh, that we did. Sounds as if there's a lot of innovation there, thinking on your feet during the uh, the COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, for sure, there, uh, Colbert, particularly in the earlier stages of the uh, the pandemic. Um, of course, yeah. from a um, sort of outsider's point of view, I've heard a great many stories from the uh, the front line within the care sector about carers having to remain within the care homes and sleep in on the premises yeah. because of the risks of going yeah. home to their family, picking up COVID and then bringing it back yeah. into the home and then also vice versa yeah. as well, maybe getting it in the home and taking it back to their families. So from a mental yeah. health point of view, just how has yeah. it been managing that both in terms of safeguarding your own well-being as well as that of the people yeah. that you've been working with and of course the residents yeah. too? Yeah, sure. Um as the MD of the company, I mean, I was uh, watching every single news briefing, reading everything that was coming through from the government. Uh, luckily, I do have a, a group of operations managers, so we were very much able to talk about and plan what we were going to do. Uh, in terms of our staff, uh, it was a case of you know having regular meetings with them, supporting them. Uh, to be honest, staff were absolutely brilliant because most of our staff, they during that you know those first sort of three four months, they went home and they came to work. They they didn't go anywhere else. Uh, there were many you know who were affected a lot more than others. Uh, you know some just you know um, didn't come to work. Uh, you know they they wouldn't notify us. They you know basically just you know refused to come to work. And, you know, majority of them, I would say, were just, you know, coming in every day. And, 
you know, I really respect our, our staff teams, you know, the way that they, they rose to rose to the challenge. But the only way we could support them was just, you know, lots of training, you know, lots of talking to them, geeing them up on a daily basis. We, uh, we made accommodation available in all our homes that if any staff did want to, to you know, remain away from the family, there was that opportunity for them to do that. But uh, actually, I think it was only one of my managers uh, who stayed on site uh, for a few days. and uh, But the rest of the, the staff didn't actually, um, you know, take up that facility. And just given, of course, how um, people have perceived the government's management of the uh, the crisis as well, particularly in the early stages with the care industry being undersupplied, and I do acknowledge, of course, that PP provision and, um, of course, procurement was a global problem. Um, do you think that sort of leadership within the care sector has been as respected and appreciated as perhaps it should have been? And indeed, the government's leadership through this has been up to scratch. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm you know, one of the people who was very, very critical of the government, the way that it has been handled. Um, I, I, you know, I think um, the feeling within the care sector was that it was kind of decided that, uh, you know, inevitably it's going to affect all the people more. And, uh, and I, you know, I think there was a discriminatory practice you know, let the old people die because we've got to, we don't want our hospitals, you know, to be overwhelmed and, you know, younger people will take priority. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so you know, I don't think that, uh, that, that the care sector was treated well. I don't think uh, that the older people were valued, uh, you know, at that time, I, I think. You know, because of the backlash now, the situation now is very different to to how it was at that time. And even when hopefully we do have a working vaccine in place for the COVID-19 virus, because of the prolonged anxiety that is going to be caused as a result of all of this, do you feel, still think it's going to take some time to encourage people to come back into care homes and visit their relatives just because of a little bit of a COVID hangover effect and there might be some hesitancy to do that just because of safety assurances? Um, yes, I think most of the families are still thanking, you know, my managers asking them to thank me for the steps that I took to cocoon our residents. Um, and, you know, they are grateful for that. And as a, as a result of our very early actions, we did manage to keep the virus out of uh, at least four of our homes. And um, so, but there have been, you know, a few families who were not happy uh, with the actions that we've taken. So we've had to respond to MPs. You know, they were going to CQC, to social services, complaining that they weren't able to have access. But our, our position on it was that we have to think of the interests of the majority of our residents and also our staff, you know, who are turning up for work every day. And uh, and we have to think of, think of their families. And uh, so I, I think, you know, we will remain nervous. We did open up visiting, uh, you know, for a while when we thought we could safely facilitate visits. But as soon as the, the R number started going up and the number of infections started increasing, uh, we have locked our homes down again. And, uh, yeah, we, we would have to be, uh, I, I think, actually, you know, as a result of this, the infection control procedures 
uh, you know, will remain, um, you know, at, at quite a you know high standard. I think that's probably the good sort of outcome of, of the COVID. So I, I don't think we will be taking any chances anytime soon. And just thinking back um, and reflecting on your experience of this pandemic so far, would you say that in your sort of leadership capacity, there's anything that you've learned from going through this experience? Um, I think um, I have surprised myself uh, the the way, you know, that I, I handled uh, the whole process. And so I've had very, you know, very, very positive feedback from all my staff. And I said, you know, very positive feedback from, from the families that I was able to think, you know, ahead and put all the measures in place that we possibly could have done. And uh, so it, it has actually, you know, given me more confidence in myself that, you know, I am able to handle difficult situations and provide, you know, leadership for my staff team. And, uh, you know, the messages from staff are always, you know, thank you so much for everything that you've, you've done. And, and we've, you know, felt, felt safer and uh, coming to work, they, they, they felt protected. So, uh, you know, yes, it's been, you know, the most complicated, you know, most difficult, um, you know, um, uh, job that I've had to do. Um, and, and, I, and I feel that, I, you know, we have come out of it stronger. And thinking about the future now, Corby, just before we do wrap things up on the programme this afternoon, um, we know that over the course of the next 12 months, for at least the first part of it, we're going to have to keep persisting with the new normal, particularly through the autumn and the winter months. And then hopefully by the time that spring does arrive, we will have a working vaccine in place and can start to perhaps look to the future. But Over the course of this whole next year, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve yourselves at Eversley and your other care homes that are under your charge? And also, where is it that you see yourselves being in 12 months' time all being well? Um, I think for the foreseeable future, I think we will still continue to take all precautions. We will maintain our isolation unit. Um, So any new admissions, to the homes, we will bury and nurse people for 14 days before they can move into their rooms. I think you know we, we will continue to do that. I think in terms of you know uh, visiting of, of families again, you know we will still all the infection control procedures uh, will remain in place. Um, I am hoping that you know once we have got the vaccine and everyone has been has been vaccinated. Um, I think that it is unlikely that we will go back to normal, you know, um, by March. I'm looking at probably by next October, we might go back to some some normality. Well, let's certainly hope so, Corby, because um, I'm sure everybody is keen to get out of this rut we seem to be stuck in before too long. So let us hope that by this time next year, we will, of course, be out of that and we can start looking to the long term future and maybe at leaving COVID behind. And given how enlightening it's been hearing your views as to what's been going on on the front line, I actually think it would be wonderful at some point in this next 12 months to catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are developing um, once we get through the winter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, Corbeer, and do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Thank you. You too. Thank you.
I'd also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in this afternoon. Please do continue to take care of yourselves, stay well and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Kulbir Candola onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable and mental health concerns. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname, it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, 
it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly 
it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test, test match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be. The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help... Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary yeah. thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team base at the Oval or a team base at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.